Yeah, just when you thought it was safe, I'm back. Uh, when I spoke two weeks ago, I uh, left the service and I went, on, went home, got my suitcase and was gone for a 10-day business trip. And then last night, we had the men's uh, meeting here last night, so I've been extremely busy. The movie night was a success. We were watching Lord of the Rings, except I messed up. Um, I didn't know it was a four-hour movie, so we only watched half of it. So we're going to try to watch the next half, uh, the second half, next weekend. So about 5.30, 6 o'clock. Um, we'll try to send out some emails about that so we can watch it. The guys loved it. Uh, I think I'm one of two people on the planet that never saw the movie before. It was really drawing me in. So uh, if you want to come out, uh, uh, please feel free to do that. And uh, if you're not on our email list, please contact me, and I'll put you on the email list. Well, welcome. This is our fourth and final series, uh, message in the series of Ephesians. Uh, we've broken it up, uh, basically chapters one through three, which is the, I call it this uh, Christian's spiritual benefits package. It talks about the many blessings that God has given to us uh, because of the shed blood of Jesus. For those of us who put our faith and trust in him, you know, we can become children of God and we have his Holy Spirit living in us. So that's chapters one through three in a very short nutshell. And then chapters four through six is how do we live out our faith? And I talked four, uh, two weeks ago about in chapter four, it starts off with walk uh, in a manner worthy of God's, uh, of your calling in Christ. And he uses the word metaphor, uh, the metaphor of walking to describe your conduct of life. And then we get to chapter six in this passage that Carl just read. He talks about standing firm. And uh, that word struck me as I was preparing the message. So I'm kind of deviating a little bit I'm going to go back to chapter 5 and talk about some things where I think Paul took a stand uh, against the culture. And I just want to real quickly run through some of that with you. So bear with me, and then I'll come back to the armor part and run through that. So hang on. Here we go. Stand firm. If you look at some of the passages of Paul in, in Ephesians, there's three areas that he addressed. And what he was doing was, they're called the household codes. The Romans and the Greeks had this guidelines on how you conduct your life in certain areas. And, and Paul kind of parrots or parallels those, and he picks on three of them. It has to do with marriage, children, and slavery. And in each one of those... Uh, sections of scripture. You may want to pull out your Bible, uh, Ephesians, start with Ephesians uh, chapter 5, 22. And, um, and Paul talks about, it, about those, and he leads off with some very interesting statements. And you wonder, where is he going with this? And the first one he says, and this is every husband's favorite verse, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, what was going on back there at that time? Well, in that day, women were uneducated. They were a commodity, and I'll say a disposable commodity. Divorce was very common. When women entered into a marriage, they some, it was not uncommon for them to sign a contract in which they agreed to absolute obedience to their, to their husbands. And also to further complicate the status of, of women is it was very typical for a 30-year-old man to marry a teenage woman, and sometimes an early, a young teenager. So women were not in a very good position. So was Paul kicking them while they're down when he said this? I don't think so. The next area he talks about is, is children, obey your parents. 
Well, everybody's on board with that one. Jews, Greeks, Romans, everybody. The children need to listen to their parents. Well, back then, children did not have it very good either. They obviously had no political or financial uh, power. Sick or handicapped children were often... They were left and they were abandoned to die. It's unbelievable. And for those who uh, grew up a little bit, uh, they were subjected to very austere uh, discipline, uh, severe, harsh treatment. Child beating was the standard way of raising children back then, and it was the father who was responsible for that. So was Paul sucking up to the, the parents of the day to get points? I don't think so. And the last area that he addressed was slaves, obey your earthly masters. Well, duh, if you're a slave, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Well, back in that time, 85 to 90% of the population of Italy or Rome were slaves. A large portion of millions of people in the empire were slaves for that matter. Slaves were treated as property, and as such, they were a disposable commodity as well. They were subject to abuse, torture, and sexual gratification of their owners. The head of a household could legally execute a slave if he so chose. And if the head of a household was murdered, they would come in and they would execute all of the slaves. And it was a way of deterring the slaves from rising up and self-regulating themselves so that nobody would kill the, the master. So was Paul trying to be buddies with the rich people who owned the slaves? Was he blending in with the culture? I don't think so. He was standing against the culture. Because if, going back to the uh, status of women, he says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you have a, a, a good English translation of your Bible, if you look at Ephesians 5.22, the word that's submit or subject, if you notice it, it's in italics. And the reason that is, is there's no Greek word that's, that was filled in there. It was substituted from the previous verse, which talks about mutual subjection or submission, which it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So what Paul was doing was saying husbands and wives are to share, be mutually submissive to each other. And the reason that is, is the verb emphasizes the point. The verb is not in this path, in, in verse 22, it's in verse 21. So the emphasis is on mutual submission. And in so that's one point that kind of takes the edge off of, you know, wives submit to your husband. Another point is that Paul never really explains what does it mean to submit to the, to the wife, or the husband, the wife to submit to the husband. The closest he gets to is on verse 33 where it says, respect your husband, which isn't, shouldn't be that difficult to do. I know us guys make it hard for you ladies sometimes, but um, he just says, respect your husband. And also in verse 23, 5.23, it says, he's talking about, uh, for the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the body, he himself being the savior of the body. And people look at that and they say, well, the head, that's an authority figure. No. The image in that passage is one of unity. A headless body or bodiless head is a grotesque thing. 
If you look down at verse 31, it talks about a husband leaving his mother and father and being joined to his wife and the two being one flesh. What Paul's talking about here is the unity, not authority of husband over the wife, but the unity of the two together. In that time, the Greek people, the Roman people would not imagine. I mean, this was like chalk, fingernails on a chalkboard to the, to the people back in those days that was so counterculture. To, to put men and women on the same platform, but that's what Paul does. And most of the emphasis in, in this passage is putting a tremendous responsibility on the men. I mean, he's, husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives. And that applies to us today too, guys. Are you putting the interests of your wives first? Do you know your wife? Do you know what her interests are, what her desires are? Are you supporting her? Are you living sacrificially for her? In verse 26, it was talking about Christ sanctifying the church or making the church holy. To sanctify is to, is to set apart or to set aside. Paul was being very polite here, and he was telling the men to zip it up, if you will. In those days, sexual promiscuity was just the norm. Men would visit prostitutes regularly. They had concubines. And oh, by the way, they would have a wife so they could have legitimate children. What Paul, I think, was being very polite here was, your wife is your one and only. She is yours and yours alone. Don't sleep around. Make her special. Keep her special. And also, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. I mean, nobody beats their own body up, so don't beat your wife up. The idea here is mutual submission, husbands and wives serving one another. Because when you serve the other, you're actually serving yourself. If you treat each other nice, treat each other the way you would want, uh, treat others the way you want to be treated. The next, well, I'll go, let me, I opened the can. What, um, Wives submitting to their husbands. What does that mean? All right, ladies, don't reach for your pitchforks and torches in your purses. But um, real quickly, I'll give you my understanding of that is because this is probably a very misused verse. Husbands use it to oppress their wives. Wives use it. Being submissive does not mean that you're a doormat. It does not mean your husband has the right to abuse you or to boss you around. What I think it means, it goes back to Genesis what was going on was God created Adam. He gave Adam two things to do, cultivate the garden, but don't eat of the tree. He then created Eve to help him. Then Satan comes along and tempted him. They sin. And then God, who did God speak to first after that? He spoke to the husband. God was holding Adam accountable for fulfilling the mission that he gave them. And I think that what submission means in a Christian marriage is the wife is to support the husband so that they can fulfill God's purpose in their marriage and family. I think that's very even, very calm. It's not degrading. It, when you say some wives submit to your husband, that sounds very, very bad, especially in our culture today. But in light of Genesis, I don't think it's very oppressive at all. I think it's very, we're all in this together is basically what the message is. So you can spend series Sundays after Sunday explaining that, but that's my quick version of that. So I opened the can, so I just wanted to, to go there. Uh, with children, Paul then, in uh, chapter 6, verse 4, he, he turns things around again. He's not advocating uh, discipline. 
uh, or harsh discipline for the children. Instead, he says, fathers, do not provoke or exasperate your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He was probably one of the few writers in ancient time that was, was trying to tone down the discipline that was going on. And one of the things that, that popped out for me in this passage was, it says, bring them up in the, in the training and instruction of the Lord. To train somebody um, in your workplace, I'm sure you've all had like new people that show up and you've got to train them. What's involved there is you have to know them. You have to know what, what their abilities are, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what their experiences is, are, so you can take them from where they are to where they need to be. In the same way when we train children, I don't have kids, so I have to apologize for speaking theoretically, but if you're going to train a child, you have to know them, their ins and outs, their, discipline, their, their uh, strengths, their weaknesses, so that you can help them. But it, there's no shortcut to this. You have to spend time with them. And it's, I know I have a hard time getting together with some of the guys in the church. I know time is a very precious commodity, but you cannot sacrifice that with your kids. Before you know it, they're going to be gone. They're going to be grown up and left. I remember my father was kind of shocked when I left to go to college and, and like, I'm not going to be there anymore. So what I saw him do was deliberately spend time with my two younger brothers. Your time with your kids is very limited. Spend time with them, encourage them, bring them up in the way of, of the Lord. Mutual submission also applies here. Invite your kids into to a dialogue. You know, ask them, what do you want for dinner? What movie do you want to see? What do you want to do this weekend? Not that you have to do it all the time, but just invite them into that. Show them that you respect them and you care for them. For slaves, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And... I'm just going to read what, what Paul says. This is the best explanation. He starts off with, he says, Slaves obey your earthly masters, but he says, With respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever they do, whether they are slave or free. And what he was saying was, and this is an extremely high standard, he, he was telling the slaves, pretend that you were serving Christ. How would that change your attitude? If you knew that it was Jesus giving you the orders, would you complain? Would you roll your eyes? Would you, what would you do? And he was telling them, act as if you're serving Jesus. And then to the masters, he says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. There's slaves and masters are on the same level in God's eyes. Would a master, if Jesus was working for one of these masters, would, would he be disrespectful? I, I doubt it. The application for us today is in our workplace. When your boss gives you something to do, do you do it as if you're serving the Lord? Or if you're a supervisor, a boss, a business owner, do you treat the people under you the way if, if Jesus was working for you? Again, it's, it's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Now, one of the criticisms of, of Christianity, and especially of Paul, is, is this one question. It says, why did Paul not come out and directly condemn these abusive practices, the oppression of women, children, and especially slavery? And we don't have an answer, a direct answer for that. It doesn't tell us in the Bible. But what may have happened, like, for example, if Paul came out and condemned slavery is that the people that were slaves would then become more interested in the cause of freedom than in the cause of Christ, which is a very important difference. Jesus came, the apostles were preaching to proclaim the gospel, the message of Jesus. They weren't trying to change society from the outside, but change it a person, one person at a time. Because you can't change anybody from the outside. You can, you can put laws on the books and you can, you can condemn slavery or abusive marriages, but it's not going to change people's heart. Like, for example, we have in this country, we have, there are hate law crimes that make it illegal to harm someone or to damage property based on uh, racial or ethnic or religious motivation. Now, that may deter people from committing bad things, but it does not change the hatred that's in people's hearts. Only God can change people's hearts. And that seems to be what the strategy is. We're not responsible for what other people do. Whatever we do, we have to do as if we're doing it for the Lord. We're only responsible for our own selves. We have to give an account for what God does or what God wants from us. And sometimes we have to take a hard look at at the culture that we're in, because sometimes it's hard to see that objectively. Like, for example, we're in the American culture where the American dream is to um, get an education, get a nice job, have a big house and car and second home and put away a lot of money for retirement. I just simply ask you, is that in the Bible? Now, I'm not saying that homes and cars and money and jobs are bad. What I'm saying is if, if that value is what's controlling your life, that's the problem. Too many Christians live blending into the culture and not taking a stand. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to take a stand on our marriage, raising our kids, and how we conduct ourselves in the workplace. Because we can change one person. You can change a family. You change a family. You can change a community. You can change a workplace. It appears that what Paul wanted to do, what Jesus wanted to do, is to change society from the inside out. So are we going to live our lives based upon the culture or, or what Christ says? Are we going to follow the truths of the Scripture or not? That's, that's, that's our transition into the, uh, into the armor of God. And Paul says, well, let me back up a second. The armor of God is we're taking a stand against the enemy, which is the devil. All right, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Some, a lot of Christians don't believe in the devil. They don't believe in demons. Um, talk to the average person on the street, they'd probably scoff at that. But this is what C.S. Lewis had to say, the great Christian writer and thinker of the 20th century. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And what C.S. Lewis is saying there is if you ignore the existence of, of Satan and the demons, you do so at your own peril. You're leaving yourself open to attack. And on the other hand, if you think that every light bulb that burns out, every flat tire that you have is, is of the devil, then you're just going to be paranoid and preoccupied, and it's going to take your eyes off of Christ. So we need to have a healthy view of what's going on around us. Unfortunately, we can't see this. And what I've seen in my life is that the more you get involved in the service of God, you get to experience strange things that happen. It, it's, you know, can I attribute it directly to the devil, but it's, it's issues like health issues, um, conflict, division among people, the, the, you know, what went wrong, you, it just comes out of the blue. You deal with some strange things, and it seems to be the more involved you get in serving God and advancing his kingdom, the greater opposition that you're going to face. If you're sitting in the pew on Sunday here and doing nothing to advance God's kingdom, Satan's not going to bother you because you're not a threat to him. He's not, he's not like God. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-present. He only has limited resources. And, and I'll even go out and say this. He knows the Bible better than we do. He's had 2,000 years to read it. He knows in the end he loses and he's out to take up, make our lives as miserable as possible. He's out to try to stop the advancement of God's kingdom however he can. And if he sees you moving in that direction, he's going to probably, if he finds you, he's going to come after you. So that's why we need to put on the armor of God. You probably, if you've heard this passage or heard a sermon on it, you've probably seen a, a, a picture like this uh, where they have a Roman soldier and they point out the different uh, pieces of armor. When Paul was under house arrest in Rome, he was either chained to a Roman soldier or there was one uh, or he was chained up in his home, but uh, there was a Roman soldier with him. So he got to see up close and personal this, this armor that, uh, that he goes on to talk about. And so um, it's interesting what you find on the Internet. Um, uh, this is... Uh, I'm not getting in touch with my inner girl, but this is... Uh, you can get armor of God jewelry. And if you like silver and turquoise, that's, there it is. Uh, they have all kinds of different precious metals and stones and stuff like that. So husbands, one way, one application point here, you can buy your wife a piece of armor of God jewelry. Don't wait till Valentine's Day or your birthday, her birthday or Christmas or whatever. You can, you can buy her one of those, either a bracelet or necklace. Um, and it also gives you points because it shows you paid attention to the message today. So sorry for that bit of humor, but I stumbled across it. I couldn't believe I saw that, but uh, somebody thought of it. The first piece of armor is the belt of truth. And I lost my notes. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt, or sometimes it's translated as the girdle, is a fundamental foundational piece of equipment. As you can see on the picture, it's holding the breastplate in uh, in tow, it's a place where he can hang his swords, and also it offers some protection to the lower groin and, uh, and lower abdomen area. It holds the rest of the armor in place, I guess is the best way to describe it. For us as Christians, we need to decide, are we going to base our lives on the truth of God's word, or are we going to follow the whims of the culture? 
we need to have a good foundation as, as we go out and we live our lives for Christ. So the truth is very important. Therefore, it's very important to read your Bible. You know, you're, if you listen to me enough, I'm going to tell you, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. If you say you can't understand it, then invest in a study Bible. The study Bibles are very good at explaining things to help you understand. And in the back of the books, back of these study Bibles are all kinds of um, notes on, on different theological points that can help help you in your faith and help you understand God better, help understand what your roles and responsibilities are. So they're an invaluable tool, but you have to immerse yourself in the truth. The next is the breastplate of righteousness and uh, the ward over the, the, the torso, and it was protected in the vital organs from arrows and swords and all sorts of nasty things that fly around on the battlefield. And the breastplate of righteousness is in a Christian realm is the righteousness that God gives to us when we put our faith and trust in Christ. The righteousness that there is not your righteous deeds because we're not going to be perfect. The righteousness of Christ is perfect. It is going to protect us because the enemy is going to try to tell you that you're no good, that you call yourself a Christian and you just said this or you did that, or you call yourself a Christian and you had this horrible life in the past, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, he no longer, God no longer sees dirtball Dave. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And that's how we need to see ourselves, is that we are right in God's eyes. And no matter what Satan says, no matter what other people say about us, we are right in God's eyes. And that is just the shield to protect our hearts because Satan wants to wound our hearts. And if he can discourage us or dissuade us, he's going to try to do that. But we need to stand behind and put on that breastplate of righteousness. The next one is, and have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. And I know that's kind of a weird picture, but um, in military terms, you probably don't think of footwear as as a piece of military equipment, but uh, some of the military successes of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were directly attributable to the footwear of the soldiers. They were able to move large numbers of soldiers vast distances over rough terrain to outmaneuver their enemy, and they won the battle. And it all came down to their footwear. And as you can see, they also got the little studs on the bottom that helps them to, to not uh, slip and slide. They can also uh, put little cleats in there. So like if you've ever played track or football or whatever with cleats on your feet, they could also put those in there. So the point is that they can either march great distances or they can stand firm where they're at. And for us as Christians, when we stand firm on the gospel, it's a tremendous relief to know that it's only through the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we can have eternal life. It's, we don't have to depend on our own efforts. We don't have to struggle to earn God's approval. It is that good news of the gospel that it's a free gift for all of us, and we have to stand upon that truth. Shield of faith. The shield of faith helps us extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. And I know that's not a Roman soldier, but that's the best picture I could find for flaming arrows. The Romans used to have a large wooden shield that they would cover with leather. And before battles, they would soak that leather shield in water so that it was waterlogged. 
so that if the enemy fired fiery arrows at them, the moisture in the leather would extinguish the arrows. For us as Christians, sometimes life throws some pretty fiery arrows at us. Sicknesses, disease, uh, loss of a loved one, financial setbacks, jobs, troubles, uh, even discord within a church, and you sometimes wonder what's going on. And sometimes the only thing you can do is just hang on and trust God. God is in control. There's nothing that happens to us that doesn't go through the filter of his kindness and his goodness and his mercy. Nothing happens to you that's a surprise to him. Maybe a surprise to us. We may not know what the reason is, but we have to trust in his ultimate plan. If we don't, we're going to get hit by this flaming arrows and it could take us, out of the, take us out of action. There's many people who have given up following Christ because they have, they have given up on the faith. They have let the arrows hit them and hurt them. The helmet of salvation, obviously the helmets are to protect the head. There's a lot of things flying around, rocks, arrows, spears, uh, protects the soldier's head. For us, the helmet of salvation is the peace of mind that we know that our eternal destiny is secure. Probably one of the worst things you can have is, is, is being insecure, not believing or not knowing that your eternal destiny is secure. Um, being able to focus and get your mind off of that is, is a tremendous relief. Also, the helmet uh, of salvation, thinking of your salvation, it guards your heart, it guards your mind from uh, stray thoughts and doubts that, uh, that Satan can throw at you. We are secure in Christ. We have an eternal destiny and, and rest on that peace of mind. And the last piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword is a piece, it's a Piece of, it's a weaponry, piece of weaponry that you use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's not a spear or an arrow where you're throwing it at your enemy that's, that's at a distance. When you're using the spear or the sword, excuse me, you are in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The enemy is very, very close to you. When the enemy moves in on us, we need to be familiar with God's Word. We need to refute him with the truth of the Scriptures. We need to know this truth. When Satan says you're no good, you say, yes, I am good in God's eyes. I am secure in, in Jesus. We need to have the Word of God in us. The last image I want to share with you is probably one you've not seen or doesn't come to mind when you think of the armor of God. That's a... Uh, a formation that the Romans called the testudo, or it's also called the tortoise. And if you, obviously a turtle. And what I want you to, to leave here today with is, you know, not only standing firm against the culture and standing firm against the, the enemy, but I want you to stand firm together. We need each other. The Romans had a way of locking those shields together so that it was almost impregnable. It was kind of like, a, like the tanks that we, you've seen on the battlefields. That's kind of like a human version of a tank. They could advance on the enemy and not be hurt because they were together. They had each other's back. They could protect each other also on the side. It was, it was quite a, a, an ingenious use of all of the equipment and using people together. 
my heart for you guys is that we do life together, that you know each other, you pray for each other, you support one another. And it's not just a cliche. We really, really need each other. We're all going to go through struggles. We're all going to have doubts. We're all going to have trials and tribulations, and we need each other. And when we're in a formation like that, it's very, very hard for us to fail. When we're out by ourselves, we're vulnerable to attack, and we're vulnerable to being hit by the enemy and taken out. So I just want you guys to think about being involved in some kind of a small group or some kind of a ministry. Don't leave yourself outstanding alone. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you.